Theology Podcast. My name is C.R. Wiley, and we're uh, recording today again from the Corner Pug here in West Hartford, Connecticut. And I'm joined by my friends, Tom and Glenn, and uh, I'll let them introduce themselves. Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of history at Central Connecticut State University, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And Tom Price, I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, uh, adjunct professor both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And uh, as we jump into today's discussion, I want to just take a moment to talk a little bit about our our, uh, Kickstarter campaign. The good news, of course, if you haven't heard already, is that we're fully funded. We'll be able to get some new sound equipment. We're still about three weeks out from the cash arriving. Uh, for us to make the purchase, but uh, we have a pretty good idea about uh, concerning what we're going to do with the, the funds and what we're going to buy, and we, we do believe that it's going to improve the quality of the, of the uh, show. We uh, have heard, you know, time and time again that uh, it does get a little bit difficult at some points in the, in the podcast to, to make us out because of the background noise and so forth, so that's what this new equipment will hopefully be able to mitigate, the, the, those distractions. Now, we've been, of course, listening to the podcast, and we wondered, what's all the fuss, you know, as we've listened to them? And the, but I discovered what the fuss is just recently. I, when I've listened to the, to, the, to the Pugcast, I've done it in my car, and I've got a great speaking speaker system in my car. I've done it at home, and I've got a, a beautiful Bose uh, you know, wireless Bluetooth uh, speaker able to hear us just fine. But the, for the first time... I listened to one of our podcasts on my phone with headphones, you know, the little earbuds, and and I and I realized what people were getting at. It it really is difficult to hear us uh, when you listen to the podcast in certain on certain devices in certain ways. So again, we hope that this is going to solve the problem. But we wanted to let you know that we're sensitive to the complaints or we're attending to the complaints, and we we're working with it, and hopefully things will get better. But anyway, enough of that. Today, it's Tom's Day. Tom's Day for the subject. So, Tom, tell us what we're talking about. Well, what we're talking about is kind of related to what you were just talking about. We're talking about technology <laughs> and the capacity to enhance things, but also the risks involved. And uh, I just wanted to really talk about the relation of um, Christian, the Christian worldview, Christian uh, thinking as it relates to technology, I guess, in general, and then um, modern technology in particular. And at this point, I'm not really interested in any specific technologies. I'm more interested in just starting to, to weigh the, the place of, of technology um, within the fuller Christian vision and some of the, uh, the, of the ultimate purposes of the Christian faith. Um, one thing that is pretty obvious to, to any of us is that we're, we're in an, a field of ever-increasing technologies. Um, and uh, growing debates about the ethics of such technologies are increasing all the time. And a lot of these technologies we've kind of hinted on in other uh, podcasts, especially as they rate, relate to sort of human enhancement. Um, you know, we have now have the capacity, if somebody you know, has a certain identity issue different than their particular embodied uh, state, you can now alter it. And... Um, we're also seeing this in terms of certain drugs that allow sort of mental enhancement. We're seeing this with, with all kinds of things um, that allow us to be stronger at certain points or to, to use our minds in ways through technology that you know, 
they weren't even conceivable <laughs> at, at different times. And so, so really, there's a, just a, a huge hit by the rapid increase and expanse of technology that is continuously refashioning and repatterning human interaction in life. And sometimes this is happening so quickly that we don't have enough time to digest it before we're already invested in it. And, and um, I think some of the conversations we've had before really sparked my, my interest here. Um, one of the areas was just the huge impact, for example, that uh, the Industrial Revolution had, especially on the family we were talking about, or the way in which reproductive technologies um, in dealing with procreation and, and, uh, and the relationship of husband-wife and the call, the, the original mandate to be fruitful and multiply. And just the way that really both of those and, and then the, you know, and their advancement have allowed family structures to break up, um, children to be born in all kinds of differing contexts, and so this becomes really the norm in which Christian faith has to try to live out what it considers you know, its commitment to truthful enactment of our, our creaturely um, gift. And so that's kind of one of the areas that, that I was looking at and I'm interested in. Now, now before you go on a little further, I can just think over the course of my lifetime uh, that the sort of the transition in um, how people think about technology. You know, when I was a kid in the 60s, uh, there was still largely a, an optimism with regard to technology. You know, yeah. you know, science fiction in the 50s was all about you know, venturing out into interstellar space and discovering hideous monsters. And, and it was more or less sort of the Wild West kind of extended outward. <laughs> People were pretty much the way they are now. And I remember watching the, uh, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, which was produced, I think it was 69, hmm. you know, Stanley Kubrick. So it was so far out of its time, except in one way. Everybody was really clean cut in the film. I don't know if you remember this. It was yeah. like everybody was from like 1967 in terms of the way they looked. <laughs> Haircuts, clothing, you know, men and women were still very distinguishable. <laughs> you know, uh, the women were feminine, the guys were, you know, the scientists were all men, you know. It was just that kind of thing, even as late as 1969. But then by the time you got to Planet of the Apes in like 1973, uh, something radical had cha tra changed in terms of our thinking about how uh, technology relates to, to natural order. You know, when you think about Planet of the Apes, or all a slew of Charlton Heston, you know, uh, dark science fiction films, you know, dystopian films, you know, like Omega Man, Soylent Green, all these different things. And, and, in, and in those films, technology was the villain. And now, you know, you know, it seems as though our, our, we've got a kind of a love-hate relationship yeah. with technology. On the one hand, we look at it as a threat. We see the natural world around us, which, in, you know, was historically the threat. Now we see ourselves as the threat to it. We're afraid that nature is too fragile to uh, survive our technological prowess. So lots of weird things happen. Yeah, and this is where I think in uh, one of Ronald's uh, Cole Turner, he's a theologian who's kind of been, he's been at this for a long time, but this is one of the areas in which technology, and modern technology in particular, um, cross right over into religious and theological questions. They're all over the place, yeah. and, and people do have these. I just, um, well, before I, I kind of mention one of the, 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 um, the polls that I saw today, 
Um, you could almost trace similarly if you watch the earliest Star Trek to the later versions, mm. the new generation, the next generation. You can see actually developing within this the differing relationships yeah. and self-understandings that go by the different relationships to technology. It's it's actually you know worth, worth kind of tracing. Yeah. But one of the polls I saw today, I think it was Rasmussen, um, or it was another one, but it was it had to do with 57 percent of people that were polled in, you know, in, in the West were frightened by artificial intelligence and the mm. prospects of artificial intelligence. So there's definitely this... My same. question is, is the, were the people who were not threatened <laughs> intelligent enough to understand <laughs> what, was, what was being asked? That's very true. And, and so, um, the, but my way into this wants to be kind of a slow step, because this is a long-term project that I'll probably be revisiting some of this stuff weekly, and I think yeah, each one of us have, have differing... Uh, points in our own work that touches on this theme, but I just kind of wanted to start out there with the first question. It's that sort of the, the original biblical mandate to subdue the earth, sort of what the aims, ends, and ultimate ends are about that that particular task. If we, if we remember back in the Genesis um, story, you, you, have, uh, you have, first of all, the commission to be fruitful and multiply, procreation as, as one of the, the tasks put on, and the gifts and tasks put on humanity. But the other one was about toiling, hmm. toiling, cultivating the garden. And so to labor, you know, it's a lot of especially Reformed theologians will talk about this kind of um, creation ordinances. Labor is right at the heart of that. And so pre-fall in humanity, um, labor definitely had course a different it had you know a nature that didn't didn't work against it so much in the same ways um, as, as you do with the cursed ground as 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 the fall puts it um, so just kind of throwing it out there uh, some of the things that may be uh, just from your own experiences and the work you've done I mean what about this original mandate the relationship about having to somewhat not only cultivate but the way in which we're going to have to develop things in order to cultivate. You have to cultivate with something, and that requires a certain relation to the creation um, and a certain development of it that is what we would call a created good. Yeah, um, I'll jump in on this. When you take a look at the description of creation... What you get is, and we've talked about this before, you, you get the idea of God spends the first three days forming the world and the next three days filling it. And then he takes a world with lots of resources and things like that and tells Adam and Eve to form and fill it. Yeah. Basically, finish the job. Hmm. Okay. Um, so you have that. And then along with that, it's worth noting that the specifics about the garden... The first thing that we're told about the garden is that it's a place of beauty. There are trees that are a delight to the eye. The second thing we're told is that it's a place where you can get food. You know, they produce fruit that you could eat. So God tells Adam to tend and protect the garden, which means he's got to tend and promote beauty as well as economic production. So this is a mandate for arts and business. Then he also tells Adam to name the animals. Um, in order to name them, because of the way Hebrew works, they think that names need to reflect nature. So in order to name the animals, he had to study them and come to understand them. So what we're dealing with there is taxonomy and science. 
So you get art, science, and economics right there, and then you get the family tied directly into it. And then the sustenance of the family within this environment that provides everything, but the, but the part of the human task is to to have a, a, to partake of the task of cultivating it, guiding it, directing, developing it, so that it can supply all of those things in a, in a continued in a continued way. Yeah, to kind of build on what you're talking about, Glenn, I think uh, technology, I think, is implied at the start. You know, we don't have an account of Adam plowing, right? We do, we do have, in the very next generation, you know, tool making going on. That's right. But uh, I think from a uh, historic perspective, if we step back and look at what we know about just how a lot, you know, different communities live in the world. There have been hunter-gathering communities that have existed right up into to the, to the present day, different parts of the world. And they're living on the, kind of the surplus of the land, and, they're, and unless they're in a very tropical place, they have to move with the food, mm-hmm. because the food moves. So uh, that has a way of disrupting uh, settled life, obviously, <laughs> but it also has a way of kind of uh, providing a, uh, or failing to provide a kind of an economic center for a household. Hmm. You know, you just, uh, things are much more fluid in an environment like that. Hmm. And uh, you, you obviously still know who your mother is, you still probably know who your father is, you know, there are these, but, there's, but there's not the same kind of uh, lived intensity, yeah. and patterns of life. What makes the household possible and agriculture possible in the ways that we understood them up until very recently were tools. So I don't think there's anything intrinsically evil about tools. I think they're an example of uh, the ways, a way in which God's uh, image in us is expressed. You know, but at the same time, like everything, things can go go wrong. We 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 allow our tools to use us. I kind of feel like that's that's kind of what's happened. Yeah, and that's that's going to be one of the big things that happens. You you know, when we because one of the things I want to follow that up with is the fall and and its impact on things. But uh, John Murray, who yeah, I I would just add that I think we have. I I think Chris is absolutely right about tools, but. Where I started where I did because we have to understand what our purpose is. So what is it that enhances our ability to carry out the original mandate to build culture, to cultivate the arts, to cultivate food, to do science? What are the things that we need to do that? And that's where technology comes in. We need to understand the purpose behind the technologies before we start Right. Uh, uh, examining, you know, what is and is not appropriate. And interestingly, at this point, the the, the labor task um, and the task of working and, and cultivating and subduing is it's interesting the language of subduing hmm. in, in the garden state. Right. Um, but but the, this this language is it, this uh, language is used in a way that is presuming they have not partaken at this point of the knowledge of good and evil. And so that, that right. twist doesn't happen here. Um, John Murray, uh, I'm sure you know the name very well, from the re- Reform world, uh, he, he has an interesting thing he puts here. He says, The biblical account of Genesis establishes the divinely ordained task for paradisal humanity, the mandate to subdue the earth. 
Because this means nothing if it does not mean the harnessing and utilizing of the Earth's resources and forces. However, for, for paradisal humanity, we are not to suppose that the Earth is represented as offering a resistance to man's dominion and that the subduing was to be that of conquering alien and recalcitrant powers. Right. This is something that's going to come yeah. in, after the fall. Rather, the subduing of the Earth must imply the expenditure of thought and skill and energy in bringing the Earth and its resources under such control that they would be channeled for the promotion of certain ends which they were suited and designed to fulfill, but which would not be fulfilled apart from the exercise of man's desire design and labor. The earth and its resources were thought were to be brought into the service of his well-being, enjoyment, and pleasure. However, he continues, it wasn't simply there. When we remember that the ultimate goal of man's creation and endowment and of the creation and endowment of the earth is the sphere and platform of his employment, um, was not the cultivation of his powers and the cultivation of the earth's resources for the promotion of his own good and enjoyment, but the magnifying of God's glory, then a vista of frontiers opens to our vision. Yeah. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The whole earth is full of his glory. And I think this is the key point. Therefore, the chief incentive for subduing the earth and the chief end to be promoted by it would have been the discovery and ex- exhibition of the manifold wisdom and power of God. So it's actually as we start to interact with the creation and carrying out our original task, our vocation, we actually are also connecting that task to its transcendental end. And it opens up this you know, vista, as he said, which allows us to actually um, commune with in our vocation and cultivation of the creation with the wisdom of God and the attributes of God as they're manifest in it. So as an example, I mean, I just think of every time there is one of these new amazing scientific discoveries that happens. You can't see the far reaches of the galaxy or the universe without the Hubble, (laughs) which is technology. And yet it reveals things about the glory of God that would have been completely invisible and had been invisible throughout human history. Right. And the same thing applies in any number of other areas. This is a, something to think about, too. That, you know, so I've thought about the distinction between science and tech, science and technology. Science gives us an insight into the physical world that allows us to make ever more powerful and subtle tools. But there's, a, there, there's something just simply good in knowing the, the, the reality as it is. In other words... It, it's it's like uh, knowledge for knowledge's sake to play on the art for art's sake thing. You know, there's something, yeah. there's just something good yeah. in beholding, to be, to beholding. Yeah. And I think that you know, contemplation, as it was understood by medieval thinkers, was this sort of passive reception of, of reality, uh, and the hope, of course, that you reflected. Mm-hmm. And somehow it would, it would shape you, but but just knowing something, not always just having to rush to application, yeah. to justify knowing. It seems like the only, we've gotten things backwards now. Now the reason why we need to know, the, you know, the structure of of uh, DNA is so that we can use it to manipulate our bodies. Yeah, and there's just to know it. You you hit on a theme, and I'm going to return to it with more with with more vigor and you know a few steps down. But one of the things that I think Heidegger you know, in his critique of modern technology, 
brought out is that with modern technology, we're not dealing with a, a, a neutral form of knowing. We're dealing with a different kind of knowing and one that is tied to technology as, as manipulative of nature. Mm-hmm. And so his, his whole desire, of course, he, didn't, he, he thought Christianity was sort of implicated in all of that. I think he's wrong. But he did want to return to the sort of ancient re- relation. And, and I'll kind of develop that more, but it, it's a... Now, there's a subtle wrinkle here, and I yeah. think Glenn's point gets at it. Yes. We can't know certain things without the tools. So there's a kind of... Yeah. Uh, and, you know, sort of feeding off of each other this thing. So the tools expand our capacity to know, yet we should be uh, interested in knowing for its own sake. That's right. And I think Glenn had another point that, that connected to that, and, and that is is that this kind of task carried out this way, as, as the Genesis account describes it, in, in its culture movement, is tying that culture to its center in the beauty, yeah. truth, and goodness of God. Right. And so right at the heart of it, and I think that's also what Murray's saying, is that it wasn't simply about enjoying these things. It was enjoying them in the fuller context. And it wasn't simply about utilizing, and and, 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 and I think we're gonna, we'll talk later more. It's a similar with when we talked about, I think, last week, um, the, you know, the sacrament of, of bread and wine, in, in which you have the aspects that we take the grain, we take the grapes. These things are, are, are developed with human hands for nourishment, which is part of that sustenance, but they're also pointing to something else. And so, you know, and of course, later, when the fuller Christian vision of Christ fulfillment of all right. things comes right. in, we start to see again right. their, the creation's connectedness to its, its fuller vision. And so these things are there. So just, you know, that kind of at least, at least kind of set the, the stage for sort of what happened in the next part of the story, and that was, you know, the fall. And so here we, we actually have a Genesis 3, 17, this time, the, the cursed is the ground for your sake. Mm. <laughs> right. Um, and so, I mean, you know, Murray puts it this way, with the fall of man, a new complex of conditions and circumstances entered, which radically affected the life of, of man and his world. However, um, we might expect that the radical change in this human situation was a cause by sin would actually abrogate the original call of procreating and, right. and labor. But well, it actually today, Yeah, but today people are saying that it does. That's exactly where we're going with this. But one of the right. things, if you interest, what, what the, the curse had tied to it, it wasn't the abrogation. It was the, the putting in a curse or a frustration into that original created mandate. So what happens? The female is now said, in pain, I will increase the pain in the childbearing. And then you have, on the other, toil will be such a way that when you carry it out, thorns have grown, the ground is cursed, so by the sweat of your brow, there is is starting to be a kind of conflict entering into this picture. And it's interesting to note that the word pain is used with respect to the man as well. It's not just pain in childbirth, it's pain in producing food. Yeah. Yep. This got me thinking about two phenomena that seem to sort of uh, find themselves propelled by these pains. One is feminism and it's sort of recoiling from childbearing. Um, And then the other is, you know, uh, the retreat of many men from work that we see in the world today, where we have young men who just not only don't intend to work, they've made themselves almost unemployable. I 
read a piece mm. from an from a military magazine and a magazine that specializes in military issues and just the, the terrible time they're having with recruits and overweight under smart we're finding ourselves uh, filling the rank and file of the military with sort of sub uh, par people you know they can't do what we need them to do um, hmm. anyway well, it's about, that point is going to, uh, I think, even heighten as as we keep going. A lot of the things you're you're saying are all relevant to kind of where this where this ends up, as we as we know. Um, one of the things I just wanted to mention is that um, one of the things, of course, from the the, the effects of the fall um, was also the fact that this this connection. If you think of the the plenitude of the garden. And so this cultivation was was really about the you know the human being able to be a part of all of this and given a task and and and, and really grow I think communally in relation to to the creator, but the food was pretty much provided for provided for right. other than this one particular tree. Right. But now all of a sudden, if you don't work, you don't eat. Yeah. Yeah. And so not only the, the, the kind of there's a new pressure put into this this situation that is going to cause. A lot of pressure with also in the family situation and also in the generational situation. Yeah. And, and so that's one of, one of the things. In, in, in case we think the kind of created order was done away with, uh, St. Paul carries this institution along. Post-Christ, post-resurrection, we're dealing with the church where he says, if, if any will not work, neither let him eat. Idleness. Yeah, there are a whole set of things that Paul said that we don't quote anymore. <laughs> That's right, because he was a misogynist, apparently. <laughs> or, or in this case, he, he uh, didn't understand. <laughs> that's, a, that, yeah, yeah. That, that's right. Well, you know, related to, to this whole idea, of course, is, you know, Romans chapter 8, mm-hmm. where Paul talks about creation groaning, yeah. you know, and longing for the liberation of the sons of God, that, that there's something uh, that creation itself is waiting for to occur in us for it to become what it always was intended to be well and this is a very interesting uh, transition place because I think that that right there sits that very question sits at what kind of becomes the bigger question for technology to us today and and um, and, and part of that's going to be what part does the fulfillment of all things in Christ and the new wisdom that we have gained as, as the church has gained and applied it to, to the world. And then the shadow alternative that I would say is a sort of alternative humanistic vision. You could call it several different things. That borrows a lot of the capital off of the church, but also takes it in a different direction. Um, but I think one way of maybe entering into that is kind of to return to what we were talking about last week, especially with the cathedral, is I mean here we we have a different intimacy and a different relationship to the creation and to building and to science and I, I think maybe even uh, Glenn maybe saying a few more things about that. What would the the relationship of of sort of the technological task be now that Christ is seen as a fulfillment of all things and uh, and that has started to take root in society? Well, I. I actually want to go to, to Jewish thought here. Okay. Um, and th- this is uh, a concept that shows up within Judaism uh, 
it's called tikkun olam, it's the Hebrew phrase. It means to heal the world. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the idea is that this is what God is about, and within Judaism they say this should be our task as well. They focus primarily on social justice. Yeah. I think that it's actually considerably bigger than that, when you actually understand the cosmic effects of the fall and everything else. Hmm. I think that what Jesus came to do was to undo the effects of the fall. That's what the kingdom is fundamentally about. And so as we're moving forward, what we need to be thinking about is how does one go about do that? How, how do we heal the world? And you know, John Stone Street's got a list of, of questions that he asks. What is good that needs to be promoted? Mm -hmm. What is evil that needs to be opposed? What is broken that needs to be repaired? Hmm. Um, what is uh, threatened that needs to be preserved? You know, those kinds of questions. So I think that that's actually the starting place. And as we look at technology, and as we think about technology, one of the things that is important for us to do is to be asking the question, how does this repair the world? Yeah. And that doesn't mean that we only have to look at things in a purely utilitarian sense. You know, Chris's speakers, are they absolutely necessary? No, <laughs> but they bring joy. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with that. That is a way of healing something that's broken. Yeah. yeah. So now, wasn't it Bacon who uh, I can't recall the work that he wrote, Francis Bacon, uh, where he hoped that the new method, sort of, sort of mm -hmm. the empirical method, scientific inquiry, mm -hmm. would lead to a recovery of the dominion that you know we mm -hmm. see promised, or at least. Uh, set before Adam and Eve in Genesis. Um, I can't recall the Latin. Title. Yeah, I, I'm having trouble pulling it out too. But but yeah, and but that's that's typical of people in that period. I mean, even if you take a look at the early scientists, the people who are the progenitors of the scientific revolution, every one of them is operating in in a world that you know in Kepler's phrase, he said, "Our job is to think God's thoughts after Him." Right, right. You know, they were trying to recover a more fully-orbed, Christian, theologically-centered vision of the world. And it doesn't surprise me that Bacon, who's really a Puritan, um, is going to be heading in that direction as well and seeing in, the, in, in empiricism a way of finding out what we need to know to, to bring us back to Eden. You know, this is this is going to sound like a weird sort of lateral move, <laughs> but I recall you know one of the, my favorite scene or sort of sort of uh, sort of uh, themes within the Lord of the Rings is the status of the elves. You know what you have with the elves is what you could say is a technological prowess. Yeah, sort of working within a sort of a range that we don't normally associate with technology, uh, but. To the onlookers, it was like magic. You know, when, when you know the hobbits would ask about the magic of the elves, the elves always seem to be puzzled. What do you mean magic? I, yeah, <laughs> they, they would say, you know, this is just a very uh, useful thing. You know, but it was also a beautiful thing. Yeah. So you know, the 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 things that the elves would make were intended to sort of uh, enhance. And preserve creation. So, Lothlorien, mm -hmm. you know, Galadriel, and you know, mm -hmm. we, we see that 
you know, the rings, the, the rings of power in the Lord of the Rings are, you could say, technology. Hmm. Uh, but each of the rings of power, now this is what maybe people miss, is Saran's ring is the ring that's intended to dominate the other rings, to bring them under his control. Well, that's that's going to tie right in. And oh, okay. well, Go ahead and keep go- going well, with that, me, because I'm going to tie that this into the... Quick, because what you, what you have then is this, uh, this sort of sort of, I think, power of virtue to sort of control the negative consequences of power. Mm -hmm. So Galadriel's ring Mm -hmm. preserved the beauty of the first age in the third age in Middle-earth. So you were like entering into a purer, better, more beautiful world that hadn't gone gray when you entered into Love for Rain. And there's this marvelous... uh, you know, when she's giving her gifts to the fellowship as they're departing, she comes to, to Gimli, mm-hmm. the dwarf, you know, and the dwarves and the elves, they've always had a kind of tense relationship. <laughs> <laughs> and she, she says to him, you know, as they're departing, may your hands uh, run with gold, may gold flow through your hands, but may gold have no power over you. That's a beautiful thought. And I think that's really the heart of the Christian vision. Yeah. Is that we would have the power that technology gives us, but would not be uncorrupted by it. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think that's that's right on. And that actually is a that that leads to kind of one of the places what we call the um, the conflicts or, or con- the contradictions of, of modernity. Um, but, um, I mean, what we could spend a little time, maybe I'll do it at a different one, where we talk about actually the Tower of Babel in relationship mm-hmm. to the, the, the technological task. Because yeah. I think we, we, we see reproductions of that. Um, and, and one could actually talk about the strengths and weaknesses of maybe the medieval vision and how this kind of burst through. And, and you know, um, some of it were developments, um, some of it were incongruities. Um, but one of the things that Heidegger noted as, you know, and he's sort of maybe a thought of as a postmodern figure, but one of his worries was that the, the whole enlightenment um, taking up that Christian task mm. and then converting it to the enlightenment project and, and starting to sever it off of the, the classical Christian understanding was that it actually went the ex- in, in the same direction of, of that having power, the ring having the power over right. the person. That was the dark, the dark thing that sat over. And we know Christian theologians like Elio, others have, have kind of picked this up. Um, Michael Gillespie, who I've mentioned several times, he, he traces this, of course, back to those shifts in voluntarism, nominalism we talked about in other episodes. But one of the things that happens there is is you start to have develop alongside the, the developing Christian understanding of taking the created order and, and healing it in light of Christ, this finished work that we brought this task. And so technology, medicine, science, these are goods. There's a real created order. There's a way of understanding it. There's a way of actually having a part in subduing it, no longer from the innocence of, of the garden, but in light of Christ is the wisdom. And there is actually a, a vocation there. We actually understand the wisdom and beauty and, and, and truth of God in doing this. Well, what, uh, what happens alongside it is what, you know, we could call just for now as a sort of uh, a, a humanistic alternative, which the, the understanding of the human being started to follow a different conception of God as sheer will, and so the human's will started to be that place of freedom in which he could actually start to begin to achieve mastery over things. He couldn't do it by himself. 
So he had to kind of eventually harness this technology to allow it to master the rest of the world. So you have these strands, one that is going along the, the sort of Judeo-Christian vision, but then one that is, is not bound by those, that sees those as part of the problems of nature that need to be overcome and we need to be free from. And so you have this end up with this nightmare almost that starts to develop where technology shifted from, from our connectedness to creation, our healing of it, and our orienting things towards the created ends and the glory of God for purely, um, you know, whether it's well, purely human purposes, purely human enjoyment. It, this ties in with something I've been thinking about for a while. <clears throat> when you look at the Gospel of John, yeah. John talks about Jesus being glorified, starting with his passion. So at, at the cross is the point when Christ is glorified. It's not his resurrection, it's not his ascension, his enthronement in heaven. It's at the cross. And that's one of these things that's sort of counterintuitive and rather puzzling. But I think that the, when you look at a bunch of other passages, I think what, what it leads you to is Jesus' glorification in his passion is glorification precisely because it is a revelation of the true character of God. That God is self-sacrificial, that he is giving, that he is kind and generous, that he loves, all of these kinds of things. And that Jesus is glorified as he exhibits that. Because that is demonstrating God most clearly, and it's where God is most pronounced in his life. If that's correct, then it also points to the problem of domination. Because when we begin to dominate, to act as domineering in the world then we are acting completely contrary to the character of God and therefore not as his stewards. Yeah, that, that is, I think, a, an excellent way of putting exactly what happens when the scientific and, and technological task severs itself from the full Christian vision. Exactly. Because it is severing itself from, and I think we could actually spend, and maybe we will at some point, a whole talk on the relation of Christ's redemptive work and the technological task. Yeah, I mean, I think right, there's, really there's a lot there. I just want to hit on one thing, and, and kind of we can kind of start uh, wrapping with that. But one of the things Heidegger noticed um, is that if he said that, you know, a lot of us assume modern technology as sort of a value-neutral thing. It's almost like the butter knife. It can be used for good, it can be used for bad. But he said that's, that's ignoring the essence of modern technology. Now, speaking of essence, is already is a giveaway. He's moving away from functional definitions and pragmatic definitions to, to ontological, right. that's right, traditional ways of understanding. But one of, two of the things he, un, he, he notices, he said that modern technology does reveal something even as it hides it from us. Mm. And one of these things that it does is the... It, 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 is the what he calls Bestand in German. It's that technology has been now made so that it's at our it, it's at at our whim. I mean, yeah. it, it's it's ready to hand. So that as soon as our will needs it, it's ready to serve yeah. our will. Yeah. And he said, but in, inside of that is a different way of knowing. 
And it's a kind of knowing that takes that, that uh, voluntarism, that view of God as imposing order on the world rather than it being consistent with God's nature. And it actually is a way of relating to nature as imposing our wants, needs and, and onto nature so that it is basically domineering in the, way, the exact opposite way. Of, of Christianity, and uh, and uh, there's an interesting article that was put out some years ago by Glenn McCulloch. I, I don't know much about him, but anyway, one of the, the um, he has an article called Heidegger, Augustine, and Poesis: Renewing the Technological Mind. But he said, contrast the the, the modern vision with with Augustine, for example, where Augustine talks about the the, the, the all the created goods that are out there. And, and even Heidegger will say the classical view, when you understood an object as caused by something, technology in the old sense, you recognize, that object recognizes its indebtedness to all those things that have caused it. There's a different relationship. It, is, it isn't merely the, the effect of an imposed will, but there is this trade-off between created goods and gifts that have certain distinct kinds and certain ends. And so the relationship is different. Now, Augustine will say because of the fall, and, and as Roman says, we've moved from the creator to the creation, that the, the, the proper relationship to other th- objects in nature has changed. And therefore, it's covetous. It's not charitable. Right. And so therefore, because we're idolatrous, our relationship to the natural world, therefore, becomes one in which we want to exact from it almost the kind of happiness that only God can give. But because it can't deliver, it therefore becomes a friction we have with it, and therefore we keep continuously impose upon it to deliver more and more and more of what it can do, similar right. to like an idol. And and in a lot of ways, I mean, I, I keep bringing this up, but it seems to be an illustration of pretty much every topic we talk about sooner yeah. or later is the yeah. whole LGBT yeah. thing, where your desires supersede order, supersede purpose, supersede meaning, and all of that sort of thing. And particularly when you get to the T, you're even superimposing your will in a very real sense, not only over created order, but over your own body. So that your will matters more than your body does. And you can't receive the goodness of yeah. the create in, in Augustine, of course, his 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 return to to and that sort of the renewing of the technological mind is that when our loves have been reordered the right way, when we've when we've returned to when we've come to Christ and we've been transformed and renewed in mind and heart. Therefore, our relation to the creation and the objects in our own body is no longer one in which we're demanding a godlike happiness from them. We're actually receiving the goodness and gift they are, even in their fallenness. And therefore, we can relate to objects, and technology can actually serve in that healing in the right way because our loves, we, we are actually charitably related to them, no longer covetously related. Yeah, I like that distinction a lot because often critics of the West, and these are often people within the West who are criticizing the West, and looking outside the West to, say, pre-modern cultures or non-Western cultures for a more sort of passive, receptive mode of of, uh, relating to the natural world, uh, are not really reading the West's history properly. It's not as though Christianity didn't have this way of thinking from the start, it's just that Christianity also provided the way to 
to do it the other way. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> anyway, to be covetous. In other words, yeah, that's right. so 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 it's you know another way to think about this is that if we think about the monastic vision, the monastic vision is not a, a, a vision uh, in which necessarily you uh, grow to control the the tools that <laughs> that dominate you. It's a withdrawal from the tools that dominate you in order to be pure. So it seems to me that some of the critics of the West have, are, are pining for the monastic. And I'm not saying that the, the, the monks were all bad or the nuns were all bad. Don't, don't get me wrong here. I'm, I'm not, not painting with a, that broad a brush. All I'm doing is sort of focusing in, I think, on a, on a particular mode or approach that some people Particularly the hermits yeah. took of withdrawing from the world, That's right. rich riches, mm. sensual pleasures, fame, all those sorts of things, rather than growing to, to, to in such a way so as to have them but not be owned by them. Yes. The the approach was let's just not even go there. <laughs> yeah. But I, I think that some of the critics of the West are pining for that. They don't want to grow up. Yeah, and there, there, there is an interesting there. It's sort of like the whole Mennonite thing. At a certain point, the, right. the world starts shifting. Do you just you kind of? There are certain goods within what they're connected to. There are also certain losses, and, and I get that. But I, I, I think that you know this option. The option it can always be a temptation. Okay, to be a Christian, therefore, is to be against technology or, or completely like a lot of the evangelical world just yeah. just take it uncritically yeah. where the point is actually no the biblical worldview the Christian faith actually has a way of, of, of utilizing those things towards shalom and all of the healing of things um, but in such a way where those things don't get detached from Christ, his redemption, and transformation. And I think at a later point, I do want to talk about sort of the transhumanistic vision, because yeah. this is an aim to actually, to, to the argument, and there are even theologians that, are, yeah. that have a thin, a th- sort of a, that want to argue that deification or glorification are only going to be enhanced and helped by our participation in certain advanced technologies that elevate us to almost like God-likeness. And so there are a lot of questions and theological yeah, issues with yeah, that seems with to those. be a growing movement. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we should probably start wrapping this up. Uh, is there anything you want to say as we wrap up, Glenn? Uh, I think that one of the things I, I liked your comment about the uncritical acceptance of hmm. technology among evangelicals. Hmm. I think most of us as Americans live in a world where we recognize that there are negatives with technology, but generally we're pretty pretty good with it, and most of us think it's a positive, at, at worst, a neutral. Mm-hmm. But um, in actuality, it's more complicated than that. So I think that was a really good point to bring out there. Thank you. Yeah, and I think I can, I can sort of end with what I, I saw an actual uh, Orthodox uh, Christian um, saying this week as he, he readies for Easter, is he actually said, um, our technology makes us so impatient even with our own spiritual growth, because we're used to having everything right there, right now, that we don't realize that buying a full plant and growing that plant from start to finish do very different things to us. And so, you know, I'll leave on that. For, for that community and their celebration. Good. That gets me to think about the seedlings of the tomato plants that I've got in my, in my study. Anyways, it's been great to be with you. Uh, thanks for listening to the Theology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye now.